morning. Uh, what an honor it is uh, to be with you and um, to be able to share my heart today. Honestly, I consider it a tremendous gift. I, I, um, I have a lot more love and affection for you than you know. Uh, I have been praying for you as a church family for the last several years, walking uh, with Ben in the season of becoming the lead pastor, and, and even far before that, Pastor Steve gave, uh, when we were in our first years of church planting and were renovating a, a small property that we were taking over, uh, made a love gift to us on behalf of your church. And whether you know it or not, your church has uh, sown into me, has sown into us, and our story is connected to yours. And I just say, with deep gratitude and affection, uh, the, the witness that Northwest Church has been, is, and will be in the future. And uh, for me to be able to come today and share something that's on my heart for you is more of a gift than you know. And I, I, I want to say this, and this is, a, you know, I understand that, that when, when pastors get together, it's, it's good to honor, but my desire isn't to come and bring flattery. It's actually to come and, and speak a reminder of something deeply true. I hope you understand the significance of the man of God you get to call your lead pastor. That Ben Dixon is uh, one of my closest friends. He's closer than a friend. He's a brother to me. And he has become one of the most faithful allies, one of the most trusted men of God I know, and has walked with me in the distinct seasons of my own life. As Emily and I, my wife and I, moved eight years ago to Atlanta to begin the process of planting a church, Ben walked in those seasons with me. For the first five years of our church plant, he came every year on his own dime, out of his own money, refused to let me pay for him, for a hotel, for a car, for an honorarium. He sowed into our church. He built up our leaders, was started as a uh, tiny uh, Bible study in our living room, is now this flourishing community on mission for revival. And there have been distinct moments of Ben's life and leadership that he's sown into us. He's come, he's seen needs, he's bought a freezer, he's bought books, he's bought things for our children, all out of his own life. And finally, I just I want you to hear this, that Ben carries not only a love, a radical generosity, he is a man of the spirit and the word, he is an apostle in this generation, that what God has given you is a gift. And it is not only something that's on his life, because I've learned this is what God does. He places shepherds with peoples and peoples with shepherds because there's identities that they're meant to carry together. Everything I could say of him, yes, um, worthy of that and much more, uh, is, is true of you. And uh, even though this might be the first chance you get to know me, uh, my hope is that over the years we get to establish uh, a deep connection and friendship. And I remind you that in these days, uh, not everybody has a pastor like Ben Dixon, a man of spirit and word, character and faithfulness, kingdom-minded, who will stand for the gospel, lay down his life for the truth and for his people. And so, Ben, I just say I love you with all of my heart and uh, consider it a real honor to be able to be here. I, uh, I, I come from Georgia. COVID doesn't exist in Georgia, if you didn't know that. Um, <laughs> 
So I'm wondering what all these, uh, no, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking, sort of. It's a little bit different down there. And uh, um, I, uh, it's been a, obviously a unique season. And actually, I have a picture, I think, of my family. Uh, oh, this is my beautiful wife, Emily, and my four kids, my oldest, Jake. And this is a, maybe a couple years old. And don't you love the cheesy grin on Rowan right there in the middle of my nine-year-old? And my little girl, Ariel, and then our youngest, Cyrus, are all a few years older than that picture. But uh, anytime I come, I, I, I come, whether I'm alone or with them, I come on behalf of my whole family and my church. And uh, you, you will find that the day you get to meet Emily, uh, you'll ask the question, why in the world uh, I ever touch a microphone and why she isn't always speaking and leading. I'm one of the most gifted uh, human beings and a privilege to partner and pastor alongside of her. And um, today, I, I, want to, I, wanna, I wanna speak a word of identity to you that I feel from the Lord. In fact, this is something I've been writing and praying over for you for the last several weeks. I was so stirred by it. I preached a version of it last week to my own church. And, and uh, I, if you knew me, I'm a, I'm a Bible teacher. All I want to do is come and I want to let you experience the power of Jesus through the vision that he has for the scriptures. Today, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about my own story than normally I would. But here, here's, a, here's where I want to go so you can track with me. I want to I point to you three passages and then I want to share a little bit from my own life, and then we're going to come back around to them. And I, I say this to you, even last night as I spoke this word, there were things that began to stir in my heart for you as a church. And uh, there is this picture, and you, many of you might be familiar with it. Jesus in the book of Revelation is speaking through John to these seven churches in Asia Minor and modern-day Turkey. And he's speaking these words of identity before this revelation or apocalypse that he has received about the nature of who Jesus is and his kingdom. And Jesus, the triumphant king, the lamb that was slain, is victorious. And no matter what the church walks through and experiences, the lamb that was slain is victorious. And so his people are victorious. And it's really this beautiful word. And one of those pictures to the seven churches, he writes to the church of Ephesus. And as a pastor, when you read this, you, you feel the depths of his word because as Jesus is communicating to the church of Ephesus, this is what he says. He goes, let me tell you what I love about you. I love that you stand for the truth. I love that you hold fast to the gospel. I love that you test teaching and you disapprove of teaching that isn't in alignment with you. I love that you test apostles. And if there is a false apostle, you'll have nothing to do with them. It's, it's this vision. And you read it as your pastor like, oh, I want that church. A church that would have that kind of vision of gospel-centeredness. A church that would be that abiding in the truth. A church that would say, no, we stand for allegiance in Jesus. We believe what he's commissioned to us. We believe what he's spoken to us. We're not going to go anywhere else. We're not going to lean from this place. It's radical and it's beautiful. And then Jesus says, oh, but this one thing I have against you. You have abandoned your first love. And maybe one of the most haunting phrases in all of the scriptures Remember the heights from which you have fallen. And Jesus says, if, if you don't repent and turn, I'm going to take my lampstand from you, a vision of his presence. And basically saying, I'm going to withdraw from you and you will wither and die. And I, I want you to catch the significance of this. That Jesus says, listen, friends, I don't care how orthodox you are. I don't care how gospel-centered you are. I don't care how much you have the theological understanding of the truth. If it is not built on first love, it is not built on me. And it's not a disregarding of the truth. Oh, believe me, Jesus cares about the truth. I say this often, the days are too hard for bad theology. God cares about the truth. 
but there's a vision and a witness of the church Jesus longs for. A church that is built on first love. And over the last two years, I can only tell you the great pain in my life as a pastor, having circumstances reveal that the church of America has abandoned its first love. And I just wonder how Jesus, if he would write a letter to us, would say, oh, can you not see the height from which you have fallen? Because first love is the foundation in which God wants to build everything else. And there is a work of what God is doing in Northwest Church. I don't come to you with like prophetic warning or somehow rebuke or correction. Don't hear me in that tone. I am simply reminding you that God is in a season of renewing a foundation of first love in which he will build everything else. Matthew 5, Jesus is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. You can close your eyes and see it. If you've ever been to Israel, you know that on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is here speaking to tens of thousands of people. In fact, it's quite fascinating. In in the 70s, there was a group of sound engineers that actually went and asked the question, could Jesus really have spoken to this many people? Is this really something that we can believe in the scriptures? And what you find on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee is these uh, natural little uh, valleys that would have created amphitheaters where if you stood at the top, somebody could have spoken in nearly up to 25,000 people down towards the shoreline could have heard it. It's, it's remarkable. They tested it and have the frequency waves. And, and so you can imagine Jesus at the top of the shoreline speaking down the greatest sermon that's ever existed, the vision of the kingdom of God, Jesus speaking on earth as it is in heaven, this way of Jesus and this way of God now found in the kingdom. And he says this incredible phrase, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill. This incredible statement to those listening and following him. And you and I, when we hear these words, they're, they're beautiful, but they're mainly metaphor or symbolism. We, we, we see the vision, a, a light casting down a, a city on the top of a hill that gives light to all around. And Jesus says, if this is true, why would you, why would you cover this? But we have to understand Jesus is speaking far more than symbol and metaphor. He's speaking identity. Because we aren't 2,000-year-old, first-century Jewish followers of Jesus. We often miss the depth of the meaning. You see, there was a light to the nations. There was a city on a hill. It was a city called Jerusalem. And when Jesus was speaking this identity into his followers, he was saying something unthinkable to them. That the way God felt about Zion was actually how he felt about them. You see, there's a church that Jesus sees, a church that's built on the foundation of first love, a church that has a vision of being a city on a hill, which carries a depth of meaning greater than I think we know. And there's this moment in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul really in Ephesians 2, 3, and 4 is probably creating the greatest vision for the church out of any of his writings. Paul certainly has many moments where he's writing deep and significant things about the nature of the church, the nature of Jesus, the nature of the gospel. But really, Ephesians 2, 3, and 4 capture something in detail and in heart that very few things do you. Even let me read this passage to Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. It says this, for he himself is our peace. 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing walls of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer aliens and strangers, but you are fellow citizens and the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. That Paul captures this vision far more connected to Matthew 5 than you would know about the depth of the meaning of what resided on a city on a hill, a place of dwelling, of tabernacle, that Jesus has now just spoken into the identity of his followers. And Paul is picking up and saying, do you not know what God is trying to do through us? Do you not know that what's happened through the reconciliation work of Jesus That God has stepped into the brokenness of humanity and by his blood and by his cross and by the power of his word, there is now a breaking down of the dividing walls of humanity. What exists out there has now crumbled in here. That there is something at work in God's people. There is a oneness that cannot be found anywhere else. And out of this oneness, you are no longer foreigners. You're no longer strangers. You're you're citizens. You're members. There's, There's a unity and a union that has now taken place inside of you. And in this union, God is distinctly trying to do two things. He's trying to join you and he's trying to build you. It's his vision of God's church. There's a church that Jesus sees. A church of first love. A church... It's a city on a hill, a church that is actually allowing God to do this work of oneness and joining and building. See, when you actually see what Paul's doing in Ephesians chapter 2, he's he's giving these four invitations. He's talking about what, what it really means to belong here is that God is doing this thing where the, the divisions of the world do not manifest within us because those dividing walls that used to divide us have now been destroyed in the person of Jesus. That doesn't mean we don't have real lives or tensions or experiences or that we're different. See, the radical vision of Jesus is not oneness through sameness. It's oneness through uniqueness and in our uniqueness learning interdependence because our identities are not based on our flesh or our circumstances or our past or our identities out there. They're based on the blood of Jesus, which doesn't make us somehow the same, but it makes us bonded in a way where our uniqueness can come together in oneness by the power of Jesus' spirit. It's a unity the world can't speak about. It's a vision that the world has no understanding for, and yet somehow we have abandoned our own identity and want to come together and pick up all of the pieces of the world to find what is only possible through the gospel. A oneness. He's saying, so if this oneness is true, then why do you stay strangers and foreigners? This thing that God is doing, this church that Jesus sees, isn't foreigners and strangers living on the outside. It is citizens together. But it's citizens who are willing to let God come and do this work, this city on a hill work, which is trying to join you 
If you look at this word in the Greek, it's this beautiful word. It, the literal nature of it is somebody who was like building a house or, or building a boat, and they were, they were working as a craftsman on different planks of wood. And in an ancient world, right, they, they didn't go to Home Depot and get their, their perfectly sized wood. They, they would have to take pieces of wood. They would, they would carve them. And then in the process of putting something together, you would have to shift and shape these pieces to work together. It's actually a vision of discipleship where you get shaped into the image of Christ. Do you know this? That discipleship is not just simply being shaped into the image of Christ. It is as you get shaped into the image of Christ, Christ is trying to shape you into a place where you can work together. It's a joining. That God actually has a vision that you would humble yourself so that you could be in unity with the people around you, which, by the way, requires a change in your own life. The idea that unity is when people finally figure out how to come to you is foolish and immature. Unity is the process of our oneness in Jesus, and because of our oneness in Jesus, we're allowing the Spirit to shape us to work together. There is a vision of going from, I'm not going to allow myself to change, to coming into that humility of discipleship where you go from arrogance to transformation, a joining. So it's going from the outside in, it's going from self to others, and then there's this third vision of being built together. And that word built together just literally, it's like a vision of the body. It's many parts, but one thing. So God wants to go from aliens to citizens, from people who refuse to change to people who are willing to change, and from a collection of individuals to a whole that God's trying to do in this church. The vision of the church Jesus sees Foundation of first love, an identity of a city on a hill, and this city on a hill so captivating our attention. We stop standing on the outside. We stop waiting for others to change. And we stop refusing to be individuals trying to do it our own way. Christianity is not a rogue sport. Trying to follow Jesus on your own will always result in feeling like failure because it is a oneness that God is inviting us into. There is a church that Jesus sees. And my word to you is we cannot move into the future without seeing the church that Jesus sees. And without coming into the place where we come into alignment and say, Jesus, the church that you see is the church that I see. And it's the church that I will lay down my life for. A few days ago, I was riding with my younger two kids, Ariel's six and Cyrus is four. He's almost five. And right by where we live, there's this little spot called Marietta Square. And it's a really fun place and all these shops and parks and different things. And we were driving there. We we're going to spend some time together. And my daughter, Ariel, she's six and she's in this season where she uh, is in love with telling jokes. So she will just come to me with jokes all of the time. Now, most of them make no sense. She's made them up, but they're delightful and she's delightful. So I'm all in for all of my daughter's jokes, right? And she came, she were driving. We're there buckled in the back. I'm driving. She goes, Daddy, I want to tell you a joke. And I'm like, okay, sweetheart. And she goes, Daddy, why was six afraid of seven? And I was like, I'm not sure, sweetheart. What, why was six afraid of seven? And then she goes, because seven, eight, nine. And she just starts dying laughing, right? 
to my daughter, this is the funniest thing she's ever heard or said in her entire life. Like it is like a level of genius. Like, and, and then because she is laughing so hard, I start laughing and we're just driving on the Mary Square, just, just, just enjoying this moment. And my son Cyrus is just like looking at both of us, right? He heard Ariel tell the joke. He saw her start laughing. He saw me start laughing. And you could tell his brain is just trying to process this moment. A couple of minutes later, Cyrus looks at me and he goes, dad, why was two afraid of three? And I go, I go, I don't know, bud, why was two afraid of three? And he goes, because three, eight, 100. And then he just starts dying laughing. And again, Cyrus is convinced he has just said the funniest thing that could have happened, right? And then he's laughing so hard, Ariel starts laughing, I start laughing. And of course, I don't think I need to explain to you context, right? What makes Ariel's joke somewhat a joke is the reality of the, the way the numbers progress and the natural flow of it. My son, though, when he saw that, he, he didn't have the ability to catch that whole vision. What he knew is he saw his sister tell a joke where something random ate something else random, and we laughed a lot about it, right? And so he thought... That's what made that joke funny. Not kidding, for the next five minutes, Cyrus just tells joke after joke after joke about something eating something else. And every time, he just thinks he's killing it. Like, he's figured out humor, right? This four-year-old's like, I get it now. I know what humor is. It's something eating something else. And he's just telling all of these jokes. And Ariel and I are laughing so hard. Like, it was really funny, right? It was just amazing. And I, I thought about this moment, and it, it was so, it was really cute with my kids. But uh, I I thought, oh, how human this is, how human it is that we have this ability, that there is this experience or this thing or this identity, whatever it might be, that has this wider breadth and depth and width and identity to it. But yet somehow in our humanity, we have this ability to see a single thing and get fixated on this single thing. And whether right or wrong, we make something that is much deeper and wider way too narrow. And when we do that, we actually misrepresent and misunderstand the very nature of what we're doing. And I believe that almost nowhere else has this happened like it's happened to the church. So many of us, rather than seeing the depth and the width, the fullness and the beauty and the breadth and the picture, we get so narrowed in on a single thing, even whether it's right or wrong. But when we make this grand thing such a narrow thing, we always get it wrong. And God is trying to awake the body of Christ for the fullness of the vision of the church. There is a church that Jesus sees, and it's time that you and I have to see it as well. My own story is one where when I was younger was unique when, in terms of my relationship with the church. Uh, I don't have time to share every part of my story, but I grew up in a family that loved God. My parents are wonderful people. I deeply love and honor them. The love for Jesus, genuine love for God, love for us was the atmosphere of our house. We grew up as kids with a deep and abiding love for God, and it really marked my life. I, I entered into adolescence and experienced what so many teenagers do, which was dualism. I, as much as I wanted to love and follow Jesus, I also wanted to be popular. I wanted to have sex. I wanted to feel good. I, didn't, I, wanted to, I, I was struggling. These were realities in my life that I didn't know what to do with. I felt the tension of dualistic nature. I really did want to love and follow Jesus, but at the same time, I really 
wanted what I saw in the world and I was, was filled with shame and circumstances, didn't know how to ultimately talk about it. And then I walked through a really rough season where my church imploded, it split apart. There was so much division that, that this beautiful family that I belonged to suddenly broke apart. I had many, many painful and negative experiences. When I was 16, my best friend drowned in a cliff diving accident, and then there was something inside of me that just went numb. It it was like I did not know how to stay faithful to Jesus. I certainly didn't know how to stay faithful to the church. And then, God, if you're not going to be faithful to your promises, I don't know if I want to do anything with this. And there was this place where even in my love for God, I did not know how to sustain the tension, so I simply went numb, and I walked away from faith, and I walked away from Jesus. I, I never stopped believing. Believing. I never stopped having an intellectual or something inside of me believing that there was a God and there was a truth in the person of Jesus. I just didn't want anything to do with him, and I certainly didn't want to follow him. And there began a season in my life where I walked into a prodigal nature, and it was easily one of the hardest seasons of my life where I was filled with shame. I was filled with foolishness, and, and, and I, was, I was angry, and I was depressed, and I was wrestling through all of these things. Now, I did my best to hide it. I was also somebody who was a chameleon. I never wanted to have anyone think poorly of me. So whatever environment was in, I tried to move and shift and be what people wanted me to be. But on the inside, there was this, this, this dying and this, this, this burden that was taking place. And uh, again, many stories, but in college, I was in Southern California and had an encounter with the Father Heart of God. And it shifted my life, an experience with grace that called me back home. It changed my life. It, it, it literally redirected my future. I wish I could have told you after that experience, I was like a radically different person. I was still figuring some stuff out, but something like a compass inside of me changed. And I realized that if I wanted to follow Jesus, I needed to leave. I had built a community around me that wanted nothing to do with him. And so I did. I left and I actually went into a missions organization and God changed and met my life. This is where I met my wife, Emily, who was born and raised in Atlanta. But we met ice skating in Chiang Mai, Thailand, Christmas Day, 2001. It feels like a Hallmark movie. I'll sell the rights one day. It was a pretty amazing experience. And we fell in love. And I, and I remember coming home. I lived and worked in a UN refugee camp on the, on the hillside between Thailand and Burma, and it changed my life. Like suddenly I was in this community centered on the person of Jesus, had nothing to do with America, had nothing to do with the environment I grew up in. And there was something in that that deeply embedded me back into Jesus. All I wanted to do was give my life to the fullness of Jesus. I remember flying home after the season. I was actually taking a flight from Bangkok to LA and I was flying home and I remember the words coming out of my mouth, Jesus, I don't know what to do because I love you and I hate your church and I don't know how to connect those two things. Now, in me in that statement, for, for me, I, I now can look back and realize this, as much as I had moments of legitimate pain, which were real, and some of us, when we have a negative experiences with a church or with a Christian or a leader, they're, they're genuine and they deserve love and honor. For me as well, there was arrogance, there was, there, was, there was foolishness, there was immaturity. I mean, there's so many things wrapped up in it. And at the time, I couldn't discern them all from one another. All I knew was that I was in pain, and I did not know how to give myself back to this thing called church. And inside, there was this great wrestling. I, I kept moving forward. I was in love with Emily. We were moving towards marriage. We, I, I really did love Jesus. I just wanted to give him my future, but I was haunted on the back of my mind about, I don't know how to hold these things. I didn't know what I believed. I knew I believed in Jesus. I didn't know what I believed about the Bible. I didn't know what I believed about church, and I didn't know how to help those things connect back together. And it was actually in a weekend in Portland, Oregon, right before Emily and I got married, where I was asking God, to meet me in this place. And if you've uh, ever been to a bookstore, 
called Powell's in Portland, Oregon. Uh, it's one of my favorite places in the world. If you're a reader, it's just like heavenly, right? And my family went to do something else, and I didn't want to go with them, and so they dropped me off at Powell's Bookstore. I spent the entire afternoon there, and I walked up to the very tiny Christian section of Powell's. It's Portland, after all, and, uh, and I found this book called Why Christianity Must Change or Die. And it just, something about that title was like a witness to me. It was language I felt like I had used before. It, there's something about it. And if you know me, you know I'm a positive person. I, I, I'm an I'm optimist. And I have experienced God showing up supernaturally in my life at random moments. So there's always this thing in me, both in my personality and an experience of going, God, are you here in this moment? Are you about to do something unexpected? And there was that deep sense inside of me in that moment. And I grab this book, I, I find a little dusty corner of Powell's, and I just begin to read. I'm there for hours. In the beginning of the, the book, the author begins to explain everything he sees that's wrong and broken about the church. And it felt like he was inside my own mind as what he saw in terms of the pain or the hypocrisy or this or that. I mean, everything, every, every criticism you could want to have from a distance, he laid it out there. And it was almost as if I was like, God, you're in this. You, you, I've been crying out to you for help. You are going to meet me in this. And then as the author moved into the middle of the section of his book, he begins to answer uh, the problems with what he believes is the solution. And his solution was really simple. It was just that Jesus wasn't who he said that he was. That Jesus certainly wasn't the son of God. Jesus certainly didn't raise from the dead. We don't even know if there is a God, let alone if Jesus even existed. And he talked about his vision of that religion is about just helping people find peace in the world. We need to come together. We need Christians need to find their way alongside every other religion and ultimately come into this vision of a, a monolithic idea of bringing people towards peace. And I remember closing this book and tears beginning to come down my face. I felt abandoned. I felt alone because I knew whatever the answer was. It wasn't this. I didn't know what I believed, but I knew one thing. I believed Jesus was who he said that he was because I had experienced him. It's not just that I believed him. I had experienced the resurrected Jesus. He had met me in moments in my life. He had met me in moments of my childhood. He had met me in moments of my rebellion. I knew that the resurrected Jesus was real. I just didn't know what to do with anything else. And as I sat in this moment of Powell's bookstore, I had the single greatest encounter with God of my adult life. I still don't have great language for it. I don't know if what happened was outside of me or within me, whether it was just me registering it or other people would have discerned it. But as I sat in that store, I heard the loudest experience of the voice of God in my life. And God simply spoke one thing. He said, Phil, do not hand your generation over to men like this. Do not hand your generation over to men like this. And suddenly in a moment, bitterness broke off of my life. I didn't ask God for it. He just did it. Everywhere where I was bitter at the church, suddenly I was filled with mercy. Everywhere I was frustrated with the church, I was suddenly filled with compassion. Everywhere where I wanted to reject the church, I wanted to run to her and protect her. Suddenly God began to do this thing inside of me where he showed me the church that he saw. And the church that he saw was a church that, that, that nonetheless didn't represent him fully sometimes. The church that he saw was full of humans that make bad decisions. It was, it was full of communities that sometimes can be selfish and hurtful and prioritize the wrong things. But even in the midst of all that we do that we are so broken in at times, there was a vision of a church that God saw. A community of his people that he loved. He loved with a first love. He wanted to love him back. He saw a vision of a people like a city on a hill, a body of oneness. 
my life redirected that day. And to be honest, it was a commissioning in my life that I will give the rest of my life to be faithful to. But still, nearly 20 years later, I can tell you that I am doing everything I can to simply be faithful to what God asked me to do. Still even learning and discerning the fullness of what that means for my life. I will give my life to stand for my generation. I will give my life to stand for a community of people that lies and half-truths and half-gospels and half-realities don't get to come into God's people and reshape them into the image of the world. See, because there is a pain. There is a pain. And almost all of the voices that want to speak to it are those who want to come and manipulate and pull on it rather than see the power and the presence and the beauty of Jesus change and transform. And I realized that day I would give my life for this. I will not hand my generation over. I will not hand my generation over. Because there is a church that Jesus sees. And what you and I have to understand is that there is something happening in this moment that is calling the church of Jesus to find its way forward. Because when you stand at the side like a stranger or a foreigner, you're handing your generation over. When you come into church communities and you go, well, you want unity? You better change. I'm not going to change. You are handing your generation over. When you come into a community and says, yeah, I get this, this whole body thing, but I'm an individual, so you better cater to my individuality. You better make sure everything's about my individuality. You better make sure the gospel's about my individuality. You better make sure you identify with everything that I care about or I'm not going to partner with this community is handing your generation over. That God has a vision of a church built on him that shines like a city on a hill that is filled with the place of his dwelling. And because we are so captured by the beauty of Jesus, we go, God, I'm in to see the church that you see. I'm going to run right to the middle, no longer as a foreigner and a stranger, but as a member and a citizen. I'm not going to stand at a distance in my own self-arrogance, but I'm going to come into a community and receive discipleship and be changed into the presence of your nature and be changed to fit with these people that you've given to me. And God, I'm going to be built with something. A oneness made of many parts. I'm going to be your church because I'm going to see what you see. The worship team, if you want to come up, I'm going to close. Or my man on the keys. After that, that this experience, maybe two months later, I saw this quote, and again, I I, I know as a guest teacher, just hear me. This is a lot of, 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 of story and not as much scripture as I normally would. We're going to come right back to the scriptures as I end. But there's this quote in my own life that met me in the middle of this moment. I want to share with you perhaps a quote many of you have heard before. It's a, it's a historical quote, but it was maybe two months after this moment that I had in Powell's bookstore. The first time in my life I ever saw this. And God used it prophetically to speak into my heart and into my story. And it's a quote I, I wanted to share with you today. Because I believe it speaks to what Jesus is actually trying to do 
among us. It's a quote by Teddy Roosevelt, and you're going to see it up here on the screen. This is what it says. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows at the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory or defeat. And it was like God used this word to show me how often I'd spent time as a critic of God's people. Can I tell you what's easy? Standing outside of a church with stone in hand, pointing out how the strong man stumbles. Can I tell you what's easy? Looking at a 501c3 or a nonprofit or a structure of this or that and going, well, I could do that better. I could do that better. That doesn't feel like Jesus. Or, oh, you spent money on that or you did it this way or, or you value that thing. You, it's easy to stand at a distance and have a criticism of what you wish could be. But you want to know what God is inviting his people into? Not picking up their stones from the outside, but picking up their crosses and coming right into the middle. And what God has for his church is a vision of saying, I am going to be someone, no matter what it costs, and it might be full of dust, it might be full of sweat, it might be full of blood, it might even be full of some failures, but I'm going to come into the ring, I'm going to grab my gloves, and I'm going to contend for the church that Jesus sees. Because the church that he sees is the church that I see. And it requires me, because he doesn't want to do this thing without me. He doesn't want to do this thing without me. He wants to do it with me. If Jesus wanted a perfect church, he would just do it. But you want to know what he wants? He wants his church with us. And so he patiently endures to contend. Your future is this simple. Will you drop whatever stones you have standing on the outside as a foreigner or a stranger? And will you pick up your cross and come to the middle and get in the ring with some boxing gloves and say, there is a church that Jesus sees, and it is the church that I see, and I am going to give something for this. Because, guys, it doesn't work to get fixated on the one thing. You came into a church, and whether it was good or whether it was bad, and you saw this one thing because there is so much God is trying to do. But you got to see the whole. And you got to be willing to take your place. The church of God's dreams is a church that you have found your way. We say, Amen. Amen. I'm not going to hand my generation over. I will find my way. And I will move into the fullness of what God has for me. You see, because when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and this is where I'll close, when Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says this phrase, you are the light of the nations, a city on a hill. He was speaking to the long history 
of what this identity actually meant. From Abram in Genesis 12 being called out to a land that he did not know that God would come and move and make him a father of a nation that is blessed of people of blessing. To Genesis 14 where Abram comes and he battles in this war to rescue his nephew Lot and he is mysteriously visited by this shadowy figure named Melchizedek, this king priest from a city called Salem or what the Egyptians called Jerusalem or what we would call Jerusalem or what the Bible would call a city on a hill. And he comes to minister bread and wine as a picture of the coming of Christ. Genesis 22, Abraham goes to Mount Moriah, Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city on a hill. God speaks to him and says, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. We hear that story and we think, God, that's cruel. Even if you knew you were going to provide something else, that's not the kind of God I want to serve. That's not the kind of God I want to know. What does this say about your character? We come with our secular arrogance and our 21st century condemnation that holds God at a distance as if we're somehow more ethical and more moral and more right and more true than him in, in the foolishness that that could ever be. But nonetheless, it's how we feel. It's not how Abraham would have felt. Abraham comes and he goes, this is just what God's do. They give and they take. If this is what God's asking for, then I'll give it. I don't want to give it, but if it's what God's asking for, I'll give it. He gets to the point about to sacrifice Isaac, and what happens? God provides another way. See, and all we see is through our own eyes what we want to see, but what we miss is this true story that's happening in this narrative. It's that God is looking at Abraham, his covenant father that he's about to build a family with, and he looks at him and he says, Abraham, you have to know this about me. That the sacrifice that is required that will make rightness with man and me will not be provided by your son. It will not be provided by your hands. It will be provided by me. Abraham, you want to know who I am? I am the God who will account for your sins. I am the God who will take the place of your sacrifice. That's who I am. And it was here on Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, a city on a hill that God displayed his vision of who he really was to the world. It's here that the Israelite people through Moses begin to wander to their homeland centered around this city on a hill. The tabernacle begins to be filled with God's sacred presence. You go to 2 Samuel 5, David takes over. Saul has just died. David is now king. What is the first act that he does? He comes and he moves the Jezebites out of Jerusalem. He takes the throne of God's holy city. He brings the tabernacle into God's holy city. 2 Samuel 6, he realizes, I've got to go get the Ark of the Covenant. I can't leave God out there. The, the Ark of the Covenant more than Indiana Jones. It's this radical vision of God's unique presence manifested into a specific place. David says, I've got to go get what this is. There's multiple stories. It's a bumpy road to get there, but then ultimately, David brings back the Ark of the Covenant into God's city into his tabernacle, into his dwelling place. And then Zion becomes this vision of the house where God dwells place where God resides. The prophets and the psalmists, they speak of this. Psalm 87 talks about how God loves to dwell in Zion more than any other place. Isaiah says that from Zion, a light will shine to the nations. That from Zion, from this city on a hill, is this dwelling place where heaven and earth collide. That the city on the hill was where God dwelt. The city on the hill was where a light shone to the nations, where God's first promise to our Father 
that he wanted to bless us to be a blessing to the nations would come alive. And when Jesus is speaking this word, he's saying, don't you know that what God always felt about Israel, he feels about you. The promises that God made for Zion, he's making for you that you are God's favorite place to dwell that you are the manifestation of God's promises, that Jesus' prayer on earth as it is in heaven is fulfilled in you. That everywhere you go, heaven and earth collides. Every grocery store you walk in, heaven and earth goes into that moment. Every single drive-through you go through, does the person on the other side have any idea that what used to only reside in the Ark of the Covenant is literally coming through their Starbucks line? That every single neighbor around you, are they aware that what only used to reside in the tabernacle in the temple now sits like a city on the hill in the five places around them? You see, because the city on the hill is the dwelling place of God. John 1.14, Jesus says, or says, John says of Jesus, that the word became flesh and he came and he dwelt among us. That word, the, the literal word is that he tabernacled among us. The translators just know that would be so confusing for so many of us. They try to make sense of it. What did he come and do? Jesus came and he, he zioned among us. He templed among us. He city on a hill among us. That's what he came and did. And notice the very end of Ephesians 2. You go from foreigners to citizens. You go from being on the outside to being joined together. You go from being an individual to being built together. And this is what he says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place, a tabernacle, a Zion, a city on a hill. There's a church that Jesus sees. A church that Jesus sees. And I'll tell you this, I'm an optimist, I'm an encourager, but I genuinely say this out of a prophetic spirit. God has called Northwest Church to a regional and national influence. You are called to be a city on a hill. It is an ownership. But can I tell you where that will happen? It'll be you. It'll be you picking up your gloves and coming into the ring and going, I'm going to get some dust. I'm going to get some sweat. I'm going to get some blood. I'm probably going to fail a couple of times. But I wasn't built for comfort. I was built for obedience. My vision is not safety. My vision is unity. My vision is not simplicity. My vision is that Christ would be glorified that his presence would dwell among us. And whatever he has to do in me and whatever he has to do in us, that the church that Jesus sees is the church that I see that will become the church that will radiate like a light on the hill because there are nations around us. God didn't want a city to represent him. He didn't want a nation to represent him. He wanted you to represent him. That's what his vision of the church is. A body of oneness community of people that says, I will find my way. I will be a city 
on a hill. Can you believe that Jesus thinks that of you? You are the light of the world, a city on a hill. So why are you putting a basket over it? Why are you trying to cover up this thing? God has something more for us. Would you stand? I just want to pray over you and then I'll let Ben send you out. Father, I just thank you for this church family. Lord, we come in humility. We want the fullness of what you have. God, we just say thank you that you love us like this. Lord, I honor anyone in the room who has walked through pain and confusion. I pray for anyone here, God, who has found themselves in prodigal seasons or feels like they're in the midst of one. Would they know you love them, that you miss them, and that you're inviting them home? God, for anyone here who, for whatever reason, they want to be a light on this light in the world, a city on a hill, but they, they don't know how to take those steps in, would you just power them by the Spirit of God to find their way to you? God, do a work that only you can do, that the church of Jesus would shine in our hour. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Northwest Church, go to our website, nwcfoursquare.org, or download our app in any of the app stores by searching Northwest Foursquare Church. Church.